Fine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Fine Pair Podcast. Joanna's still sick. Yeah. yeah the I just want you. everyone to know the bugs get you. I did the podcast with Strep Throat last week. And okay, okay, on, okay, and, okay, know. okay, okay, okay. Oh, Zach. But I can I could si- isolate in my own uh, basement, so you know. Oh my God! I, you you I, you're the best. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> uh, what Untrue, are you drinking? Thank you. So I actually had the opportunity to go out to dinner with my wife and some friends the other day uh, to a relatively new restaurant here in Seattle called Eight Row. Actually, uh, gotten a lot of press recently or a lot of attention. It was a uh, like semi finalist for a James Beard Award, etc. Um, and that's all cool. Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect uh, when we went in there because I friends recommended it or they said they wanted to check it out, and so um, I knew a little bit about them conceptually. But a really cool restaurant, kind of a lot of emphasis, like many places, on local produce. But actually, the brothers who own it, uh, their family owns a farm in Eastern Washington, and then the cuisine is kind of a spin on a lot of like Central and South American uh, flavors and to some extent ingredients. Um, mm-hmm. So really kind of delicious uh but they also have a really good and kind of uh varied beverage program the one of the two owners is sober so um they have a lot of na selections although i did not partake of any of them because it ain't january for me anymore thank god so the thing i had that was most interesting not touching it no i'm you know interested i'm glad they do it not for me yeah um but uh they i had a a what a ramp Gibson, like a little harbinger of spring here. So uh, a couple of different uh, gins and then um, some pickled ramp juice, a little bit of sherry and a little pickled ramp bulb. It was delicious. Just like kind of the exact drink I wanted. They've got a great wine list. Actually, I'll tie into our topic, say a little bit, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of wine, but really interesting to me to think about, um, you know, kind of how you choose to select wines to perhaps pair with this kind of cuisine, which is, you know, yeah. leans a little spicy, definitely has a lot of bright kind of vegetal flavors, but also being cognizant of the fact that people, what people want to drink in restaurants might not be always the things that pair best with yeah. uh, the food. So, yeah. I don't know. How about you? So I was in Miami last week, which is why I didn't join yes, the recording. And uh, I finally went to Cafe La Trova. Okay. And I will say it was awesome. I don't know if it was just because it was uh, – I was I was there for meetings, but like it happened to be over Valentine's Day. I don't know if like oh, Cafe okay. La Trova is where everyone goes for Valentine's Day. So like the bar was pretty quiet. I mean it's also a very famous Cuban restaurant with great music, et cetera. But – um, we went in around like six thirty and sat at the bar. And first of all, the bartenders are f- fucking awesome, and cool. the cocktails were really great. I had an amazing daiquiri. They make it the old school way where they don't use a symbol; they literally just like dump sugar in when they shake. Okay. Uh, they also don't double strain. They literally dump straight from the shaker into. I mean, obviously they strain the ice out, but you get the ice shards in the daiquiri, which was really okay. nice and like very old school. Uh, I had a mojito, which was very good. Um, th- it just was like, it's classic C- Cuban cocktails and they do them very well. They've been on, you know, they've been Miami's number one bar for a very long time. It's been around forever though, but like kind of was, has been rediscovered by people now, you know, it's on the 50 best bars of the world list, all that stuff. Um, but it's in Little Havana, so it's like very far away from actual South Beach, Miami Beach world. Those bar- the bars that are over there are, are much more like um, Jaguar Sun and Sweet Liberty, and doing like the more, you know, New York, Seattle, San Francisco like 
mainstream cocktail thing if if that makes sense this place is really old school and it was you're sitting you can be you're sitting at the bar with like actual you know cubans uh, which is really fun and people who've just been regulars at the bar for forever and it was really nice to go to a place like that that's been written up a bunch recently and it still be great and it not just be a place that was like written up because people have nostalgia, but it's kind of shitty now. And like, I think a lot about some of the uh, like older school restaurants in New York in that regard, right? Like, they're not very good anymore, but people sort of still write about them because they have this, you know, nostalgia for a bygone era and they remind mm-hmm. them of, you know, old New York or whatever. So they like to go there, but like, the food's not very good. I think like Joe's. <laughs> Joe's Stone Crab in Miami is one of those places, right? It's like, it's not very good, but everyone still goes because it's like, it's Joe's Stone Crab. And, like, you know, I don't agree with the Peter Luger review for the Times a few years ago, but, like, that was that takedown. Um, you know, there's there there are a few of those, though. Like, uh, old, old Homestead in New York is like, dude, just, you should just... <laughs> leave the homestead uh but yeah you know th- those those types of places uh there's a few of the italian places in, in new york too that aren't as great as they used to be or probably ever were but whatever but that was really fun and then over the weekend i got to share a guinness in celebration of Mac's birthday so i went yeah to, yeah so naomi sd and i went with uh josh over to a max birthday and celebrated with Joanne and Evan and their friends and family. And it was really nice. And they were serving Guinness. And I was like, wow, I really love a Guinness. It had been a while since I had a Guinness and it was a really delicious Guinness and fun to uh, celebrate his first birthday. So yeah, that was my, uh, my two things I drank this weekend. Wait, we also need a, I need a live report for a report from the cocktail college live show. Oh yes. That was also great. So much stuff happened. Uh, I went to I the, the live recording of cocktail college. You can listen to it. It, uh, it, published in the Cocktail College feed uh, if you're listening to this on Monday this past week uh, on Thursday. And it was really great. I mean, you we started, it was in the um, sort of the mid-floor section, so their private event space, so right below Sunken Harbor Club but above Gage and Tolner. Um, like 60-something of us uh, all came in, and we were served a fog cutter to start. Just so everyone knows, there were three cocktails, but they were all small serving sizes uh we were served a fog cutter as you sat down tim and uh garrett richard came on stage and they started the the show because the show was about the fog cutter then they served a variation of the fog cutter about halfway through the show and at the very end of the show they served the riff on the fog cutter that's going to be on the new uh sunken harbor menu that just debuted called the brain fog that's going to be in a brand new uh mug they also designed for uh, the Sunken Harbor Club, which is like a looks like a brain coral, yeah, and, and it's really beautiful. And you can also buy it for a limited time. They only made two hundred, and when they're gone, they're gone. Uh, and I think they've sold very well so far. Uh, but it was ve- it was you know sold out, sold out only in two hours of going live for ticket sales, um, nice. and had a lot of. Uh, people who love Song and Harbor Club and a lot of people who love Cocktail College in attendance, which was really great. So, yeah, and we uh, got us thinking about doing more live shows, including one for Fine Pair Podcast sometime soon. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, Zach, it's your it's your topic today. So uh, <laughs> let's 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 get into it. Yeah. So the the sort of through line for this topic to me is a series of conversations I've had over the last couple of months, uh, some with winemakers, some with people on the distribution side, some with people in retail and and even um, sommeliers and and people in restaurants. And 
None of them have said this exact phrase to me, but the thing that kind of has coalesced around the various sentiments they've um, they've shared is that no one really knows how to sell wine right now. And that's a weird thing to say because for all of the doom and gloom, wine still sells quite well. Um, it's still very popular. Uh, it still has a big audience. People are still seeking it out. They're still drinking it. And yet I think what the – you know, kind of the the underlying thought behind that very glib statement of mine is that the landscape for selling wine is pretty confusing right now. I think it's hard for uh, producers and distributors to know what are the best channels to put wine in. For producers, I think there's a real tension right now between trying to kind of generate sales and focus sales through their own perhaps tasting rooms, wine clubs, other DTC sales versus into distribution or in the places where this is possible, you know, uh, directly to accounts um, in states where that's legal. And for distributors, again, it's the same kind of question, right? Are the on-premise accounts that in, for some distributors have been the bread and butter place or at least the the most interesting accounts, the places where you sell the more interesting wine? Or have we not ever really seen wine regain a foothold post-pandemic in restaurants and other on-premise settings and maybe – these distributors need to focus and shift more and more of their or retain more and more of their emphasis on either off-premise accounts or other kinds of wine, you know, wine clubs, things like that, that may still be or may now be the primary kind of contact point for wine lovers. And I don't know. I, I brought this idea up. I think you were intrigued by it. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm curious when I when I first sort of say that phrase, right? No one knows how to sell wine anymore. Like, what what comes to you? Like, what do you think? Because you see this industry in some ways from a different perspective than I do. I think that the reason no one knows how to sell wine anymore is because they continue to sell wine the way they always have. And so. I think that everything has changed, and no one wants to move away from that change and everyone is scared of moving away. So, you know, whether that is people are scared for whatever reason uh, to move their marketing dollars from legacy publications, especially uh, two of them that have wine in their name, to, you know, new school publications that are much more relevant and talking to a much more engaged consumer base, whether that is, you know, uh, floor professionals who you know, think that the only way to really still sell wine is based on the sort of way that they're taught by, um, you know, <clears throat> the guild, right? Where it's it's all about kind of talking about the terroir and the soil, et cetera. Whether that's um, lazy shop owners think the only way to sell wine is putting scores next to the bottles. Like, I think that that's how it's always been done, and. That's really lost relevance when, like, the other two areas of drinks aren't selling their alcohol that way anymore, yeah. right? Like, maybe a few single malt scotches and whiskeys are still some selling by points. But at this point, like, on the whiskey side, too, it's, like, all about vibes and clout and, like, can you get this or not, right? And yeah, exclusivity versus in the world and, like, scores. Exclusivity, right? And everyone else is really focused on lifestyle and culture and – uh, you know how it makes you feel, and the the times that you 
would consume and like wine is still really tied to very strict uh, rules when it comes to consumption and like food pairings and uh, wine is best served with the meal you know okay great but what if I want to drink it while I I don't know watch the fucking Super Bowl like you're not allowed to so I I think all of that is what's really hurt wine and then when anyone tries and is successful like well that's an outlier like wine continues to find every reason why anyone that does it differently and is successful as like well you know th- there must be some catch you know like it's even been said to me i mean based on our conversation based on the uh conversation we had where where i talked about uh ashes and diamonds like well does anyone actually care about the wine yeah they actually do like they actually yeah. do but like they're doing it in a very different way that's much more casual and much more about like allowing people to have this amazing experience at their property where they're having this great meal and then oh yeah they're drinking the wines and they'll probably leave with a case and then they're members of the club right as opposed to like yeah. belly up to the bar here's seven wines let me tell you why each of these is worth your money and i just i don't know man i think that wine is in this place that it just it can't get out of its own way. And until <laughs> it honestly, until wine decides that like these publications don't matter as much as they used to anymore, so that they're marketing, so that they free up marketing dollars to do more creative things, until they realize that like the gatekeepers they thought weren't the gatekeepers anymore, until they decide that like, you know, they don't have to only talk about their wines in relation to food or a certain kind of food. No one will know how to sell wine anymore because yeah. selling spirits for the floor staff especially and the shops is just going to be easier because the spirits companies make it easier for them. I want to add a an additional thought here. Something that has been really I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to this topic and it comes to wine and I think I think your points are good ones. I think the other thing to take note of here is that I think through a series of you know kind of just a, a various different ways that wine has become portrayed and has allowed itself to portray be portrayed and has portrayed itself wine has really lost touch with the fact that wine is really delicious and i mean that in a sort of simple way in in addition to more complicated ways and i think that some of it is you know an understandable backlash to the perhaps overly hedonistic wines that were very popular in the late 90s and early 2000s but i think that it became like déclassé to talk about wine as delicious. You had to talk about wine as being, you know, complex, subtle. It had to be kind of impenetrable to the average person. That that and this is almost across styles, across type of wine professional, type of winery, type of producer, etc. That if your wine, if you talked about your wine as being just like damn good like tasting, you sort of were not serious. And look, I love me a lot of wines that are perhaps not immediately pleasurable to people who don't have some al- amount of experience with wine. But I also like wines, and I have grown to like more as I get older, wines that do deliver some amount of pleasure. Like one of the reasons we like wine and we like fermented fruit beverages is because they like convey the pleasures of fruit to us in a form that is a little different. And 
I just think that there's a way in which, you know, you were talking about how we've we've become so bogged down in this conversation about when you drink wine, what, what you drink it with. I also think there's been a we've been really bogged down in a conversation about what are the right wines to drink? Yep. How are they made? Who makes them? And again, all of these things are important considerations. I don't think they're things that we should just ignore. I think they are things that should be a part of the decision about what people drink. But a lot of people don't just don't have the mental energy, the bandwidth, or the interest in doing the kind of extreme vetting of, well, okay, is this wine you know, can it gonna be, you know, tick all those boxes for me and also taste good. And I think that's the other part is we've we've put a lot of people in a position where the wines we've portrayed as being the most virtuous have not delivered pleasure to people in a lot of cases. And they've either had to kind of convince themselves that the wines are pleasurable or the wines have, that have delivered, they've delivered a kind of pleasure that doesn't last for long and kind of, you know, the, the kind of novelty fades. And suddenly people are like, oh, I guess that's all there is to wine. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. And the saddest thing for me is like, we live in an era and a time where there's so much access to great wine from so many different places from of so many different types that never should a person who likes wine be saying like, no, eh, I'm kind of over it. Like that should not be possible. And yet we have kind of, and the wine industry has kind of enabled people to feel like they have had it all now. And I think that's partly on people for, you know, maybe being not as curious as they could be, but it's also about the kind of ways that wine has been put out there, and and yeah, the settings, the kinds of contexts, but also the the fact that a lot of the wines that have been held up as being sort of laudable are just not wines that people want to drink over and over again, even if they can afford to. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think yeah, there's been less of an embrace. Embrace, and I don't know. It, there's it's just so many issues, right? There's been a there's been a push for people to only drink the wines that certain people who run lists want to drink, which aren't as pleasurable to most people. There's been a resistance to put the kinds of wines that consumers actually like to drink on these lists. Uh, there's been a resistance to just selling them that that wine. I mean, the only people that really – I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but like, I, I bet if you look at the earnings for Total Wine, they probably are one of the only ones that still know how to sell wine. <laughs> You know, because yeah. they actually understand how to stock what the consumer wants to buy. And they have lots of choice. And then they have the shelf talkers that, you know, so-and-so from the store says they like this wine, too. And that's it. Like, I I think, you know, it's funny to me that, you know, there have been – this is now a natural wine podcast. I'm, I'm getting get, – get ready. Uh, but I was – when I was with Keith recently – he and I went to a, a wine bar in the city that's a natural wine bar, and we asked for the cleanest wine they had. And literally, the song behind the bar was like, "Thank you so much for asking me that question. Uh, I'm I really don't like the majority of the wines we pour, but the beverage director, you know, has." their agenda and unfortunately, we have to stick to it, even though the majority of consumers that come in ask the same question you did. What? What? Yeah. And. I'm hearing that more and more and more from people that like they who who work at a lot of these wine bars like I don't want to drink these kinds of wines. I like to drink like clean wines that are delicious, but you know, this is what so and so says we need to do because it's part of the ethos of the space or it's you know how we got press initially. We wrote we are natural wine speaking of influencers from last week, right? It's how we got, you know, it's how we got press initially is a natural wine bar or whatever. So we need to stick to being quote unquote natural in case someone calls us out that we're not. But the majority of our clientele actually doesn't really even know what natural wine is and just wants to drink like wines that are really tasty and we don't have a lot of those right now and i i think all of it has just caused this issue but i i really think the majority of it is starts with the actual wine brands themselves because if they're not helping change the narrative 
as to how wine should be discussed and sold, then everyone else is just going to fall into the same old tropes too. Like, you know, if, if the, if the goal continues to be that we only, you know, we only go to this, to a few different publications, the main publications for scores, and we only really do marketing through them. And we only really talk to that consumer through events, et cetera. Then the way that, Everyone sells wine will be the same way they've sold wine for the last 40 fucking years. And the other generations will find other things to drink because those are the, the, you know, the products that are figuring out how to sell to them. And so the people that sell wine will mostly only find that their regular wine consumer is that old generation. So they'll fall into the same model of selling that way. So then when they get someone who's younger, who sits in front of them, who's used to having someone talk about, you know, spirits or beer in a much more accessible way, they'll look at you like you have three fucking heads. And you'll be like, I don't know why I didn't close that wine sale. Well, no, uh, the reason you didn't is because you don't understand that this consumer actually wants you to talk to them about wine in the way that you would talk to them about whether they should drink a daiquiri, a martini, or an old-fashioned. And yeah. if you can't do that, then you have a real problem. Or they want you to say to them what we've talked about before in the podcast as well, hey, you started with a martini. Can I recommend four wines I think would go really well to come after that martini with your food? But they don't do yeah. that because so, that's not the way they've normally sold. Like. Instead yeah. of p- pair the wine they're about to drink with the cocktail they just had as opposed to, well, I see that you ordered the fish and he ordered the steak. Sorry, that was also really yeah. heteronormative and I apologize for that. But, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just so fucking lazy, man. And it's all it all starts at the top and it comes down to the bottom. And if people don't want to change it, then we're just going to be stuck here and why – Every year is going to continue to be the same. We're going to hear these same wine market council reports. They're going to have no fucking answers because they never have answers. And we're going to be the only ones sitting here with the answers. We've been talking about themes on this podcast. Now I'm going off on a real tangent. Let's go strap in. We, I'm sorry. <laughs> We've been talking about the death of the Psalm for the last three years. Finally, Asimov writes about it two weeks ago. We've been talking about the fact that this was happening. We've been talking about the fact that there was a massive backlash on natural wine. We had people call us out about it, call us assholes, etc. Now we have prominent former Psalms who are now winemakers being like, oh, yeah, I sulfur. Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, I totally you know, find and filter. Why? Because actually you have to to make good wine that actually is self-stable that people want to buy. Like we have talked about this because we have always made it our mission to understand the consumer. And I'm screaming about this right now, y'all. If you don't change the game with what you're doing and you keep working with the same partners and the same consumer base, you are going to be fucked. You will have massive layoffs at your companies. You will lose marketing dollars. You will see brands disappear. You will see wineries and vineyards go up for sale because you are not doing anything different. You are not adapting at all. And everyone knows you adapt or you die and you're going to die. Yeah. And I think the most, again, to come back to the premise of this, of this conversation in a way, the truth is, is that there are people who know how to sell wine. And what yes. I said at the beginning is, was, you know, me trying to be clever and, you know, sorry, folks, just deal with it. But I think about a lot of the people that I uh, meet in the wine industry who are doing really interesting things, who have, um, you know, not just looking at wine and saying like, Hey, okay, here, here's the way you make wine. Here's the way you sell wine. Here's the way you, the business works, but, but really interrogating it. And some of them are people who've come at it from other industries, people who just are more open to doing things differently. You know, people who just are, are dynamic in a way and, and, and in a whole lot of ways that move the conversation forward and their wines are remain successful. They're in demand. They're often quite tasty and they're just not 
looking to just do more of the same. But I also think that the problem that we run into, and, and part of the reason I brought this up the way we did, is that for a lot of these producers even, the problem for them is they still have to work through these channels, right? They have to work through distribution in most states. They have to work through on-premise and off-premise partners to get their product into the hands of a lot of consumers. And in some of their cases, they are really actively being like, you know what, maybe it makes more sense for us to keep more product in-house and to try and sell more of it directly to the consumer, whether it is through tasting rooms, wine club memberships, online sales, et cetera, because in the end, they don't feel like these other you know, sort of putative partners are presenting their wines in the right light. They're not putting them in restaurants and in settings where they'll succeed. They're not necessarily doing more in a shop than putting it on a shelf and maybe putting a, a shelf talker up or not even doing that. And in the end, I think you have this disconnect uh, more so than ever before where the dynamic producers, the people who are making great wine are not feeling well served by everyone else in the wine environment. And I mean this more on the side of small and medium sized producers, not the really big producers, because so much of the distribution network and so much of the retail network in particular, and even more and more of the on-premise network is so tied up in these big brands. There are there's been, you know, huge distribution consolidation. There has been a lot of consolidation of of restaurants and certainly a lot of consolidation of grocery stores, ongoing continued further consolidation. And all of that has made where the point of access for wine for a lot of American consumers, even if there are just as many seeming storefronts and restaurants, when more and more of them are controlled by the same corporate entities, the selection isn't necessarily going to be constrained. It's going to be more focused on either stuff that has proven appeal, stuff that has big marketing money behind it, stuff that has kind of built-in contracts that attach to it. And all those places, all of those entities in particular, are not don't give a shit about wine qua wine, right? Their wine, if it sells, great. They'll devote more shelf space to it. If it stops selling, if it continues to struggle, the less and less wine will be in those stores and they don't care, right? They'll replace it with spirits, beer, hard seltzer, whatever the fuck else that they can. And and it doesn't matter, right? They they don't they don't have any vested interest in wine. And so from the producer side, I can see the incentive to taking it more in-house and just saying, like, look, I can't trust not trust, but I can't count on these other, these kind of previous outlets to, for my wine because in a lot of cases, they're just not going to do the job that I want them to do. They're not invested in the way that I want it to be. And I, I just don't, I don't know how to solve that other than consumers, the people who drink wine, the people who love wine, you yep. know, you need to seek it out from different sources maybe. Yep. I agree. This has been interesting. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at Vi- podcast at vinepair.com. Let us know if you think that no one knows how to sell wine anymore. Uh, and you know, are we on track as to why that is? Are we completely off base and everyone knows how to sell wine? And I, I don't think we are. I mean, just look at the numbers. But uh, maybe you think we are and let us know. Pod- we-, we are always open to criticism. Uh, and Zach, I will see you back here on Friday with Joanna. I hope she's feeling better. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So 
The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.